I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, welcome to part two of my conversation with Sherelle, Judy Griffith, and Mary Ann Hobbs. In part one, you heard about our journeys, and in part two, we're taking a deep dive into the music industry and discussing sexism, whitewashing, and so much more. Let's get back into it. I'd love to ask you all, when you were coming up, like, did you have female role models? Because I know, Sherelle, you talked about DJ Rashad and DJ Spin and, you know, a lot of male figures. And again, yeah. like, we can't help but acknowledge the how it is a male-dominated industry, uh, especially, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. But did were there people when you were coming up who were female that you were, that you could look to for inspiration? Well, it, obviously, you, Mary, and then... Annie Mack mm. but that's like for broadcasting yeah in terms of working out whether people were you know women and they were producers mm. I think I didn't have the I wasn't in the mindset to work out oh this must be a, a woman or, or a man I mean it only dawned on me when I was like talking about people or thinking about people and looking up what machine drum looked like because he's another Mm-hmm. Um, influence to me. I was like, okay, cool, Rashad. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of um amazing people within footwork. Uh, who who are women. John Roche is like an amazing person. There's quite a few, obviously, trans artists within mm-hmm. um footwork as well. Uh, Jaylin. Um, and then in Jungle, I've got the likes, obviously, of like Storm and Chemistry, DJ Flight. But with regards to the Jungle side, I kept that knowing their presence was a lot later. After I was obviously doing my copious amounts of yeah. like research, obviously of the genre um, and in the footwork side of things, I would have come across people via like SoundCloud and stuff. But there's plenty of other names, unfortunately, like Jam Francisco or Anna Winkler or Fresh Till Death. These are all footwork producers which don't necessarily have the same press given given to them, but there's plenty of them. It was a hard one. I, I, mm. I think, you know, we, myself and you are maybe fortunate in the sense of how we've come into it and there's obviously a lot more of us to see now yeah. we even though we do still you know we're having a conversation outside still recognizing understanding what we need to do obviously to make sure that legacy wise yeah that obviously yeah. transfers over to like different people and like who are we bringing in because I guess the next group of, of 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 people that we need to make sure is obviously women and then obviously trans acts and artists yeah. as yeah. well do you know what I mean but yeah growing up you don't you don't necessarily have that so if you've only got Mary or Annie yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that, that, that's you know. exactly true because I, yeah. I didn't really have any 
like another generation lower than you, mm. a couple of generations like lower than you. But so for for me, it was like mainly mainly male mentors, yeah. I, I guess, because I just didn't see any women in in the spaces that I was really kind of interested in. They might have been there, but they were probably behind the scenes. And you know what? It's mad because before I actually worked for Strictly Rhythm, as I said earlier, it was it was a label that I collected a lot. Mm-hmm. And I used to be like, you know, obsessed with the vinyl. And as I said, look at every little piece of it and read everything. And and on the Strictly Rhythm records, it used to say A&R by Gladys Pizarro. And I was just like, oh my God, is this a, a real person? Is this like, you know, it's like a female, but you didn't have sort of social media. So you never got to see what people look like. They were, everyone was faceless back then, mm. you know. So it was just like, she was just like this anomaly. I used to always like think, oh my goodness, if she is a real person, then she's doing A&Rs. Like I never used to read a female name doing A&R on any record that I had in my collection. It was like the only one-on-one I saw. And I was just like you became obsessed with Gladys Pizarro and it was just a name. I never, you know what I mean? I didn't know anything about this woman, but I was just like, she was like kind of like my thing. She made me think that you could have a record label. You could actually sign music and do those kind of things. Like she, in a way, was a kind of mentor to me without her even really knowing it. Like, you know, when I actually eventually ended up working there, that was like a a shock, you know. And then I met her in person and I was like, wow, you don't even realise what you did to me before you were even, you know, a, a, a live person in my head, you know. But she kind of was the only one. Like, everybody else was kind of male, Mm. which is sad, really. But that's just the way it was then, wasn't it? There was just not really any female role models doing the jobs that I do, you know. Yeah, was it the same for you, Marianne? When I was about 15 and a half, I got thrown out of my own home for various different reasons. And I spent some time living with this fantastic woman, and her name was Anne Aldroyd. And she had a house that was in a village that was kind of adjacent to where we were in Lancashire at that point. And she was the most remarkable woman. And she took in all kinds of waifs and strays. There were a couple of lads that I knew really well who were living in a foster home close by and that didn't work out for them. And she took them in at the same point at which she took me in. And there wasn't a stick of furniture in this house. There was no carpet on the floor, no paint on the walls, nothing, you know, but she she welcomed us in and she said, you know, I haven't got very much here, but you're, you know, you can share what it is that I do have. And she was amazing. You know, she was seeing a guy who, I don't know, he ended up in Preston Prison. And I remember I'd go in the car with her to go and visit him in Preston Prison. <laughs> and she used to sneak in these Farrah trousers. They were like these crimpling trousers. You probably remember them, don't you? <laughs> with a stay press pleat down the front, which Ooh. were, I don't know, for some reason it was really important to have these to trade in prison. And my job was to sit in the car and she used to buy me a beef chow mein with cashew nuts in it. And I remember it was the first time I'd ever tried a cashew nut and I thought, wow, this is life changing, you know. But she was the most remarkable woman. And the way that I could, I guess, contextualise it is that she was entirely free and she accepted you for everything that you were. She didn't really ever ask even any questions or put any pressure on you. I was riding motorbikes at that point and I don't know. Um, getting into all kinds of scrapes but she just let me be and she gave me the confidence that I needed I think to kind of just pursue these crazy adventures that I ended up on as I I described a bit earlier you know when I ran away to London and lived on the bus but yeah her name was Anne Aldroyd and she was like a beacon of light for me when I was a kid so yeah it's important to have those role models, I think. Yeah, whether if it was the, the lady you've described who was so important to you or even if you can, like you described, when you see someone like 
a Marianne Hobbs or yeah. Annie Mack who on the radio that you can be like, because I remember listening to Annie's show on Fridays and being like, just hearing like a, a female voice playing electronic music on the radio, like it made me think, oh, maybe I can actually exactly. do that. Yeah. It's, the, yeah. it's the weirdest thing. I will mention that another person, but it's obviously, he's a guy, it's Mr. Jam as well. Mm, yeah. So for me, Mr. seeing Mr. Jam be a, a black DJ playing electronic music yep. in which I was into, especially within the dubstep days, hearing him do his side of things there, it was really cool for me because I was like, oh, wow, he's yeah. playing all different types of music that I'm you know, into and whatever. And it's like that representation was also super key as well. Yeah. Because I guess, you know, with, with regards to like broadcasting, you don't necessarily see that on maybe mainstream radio as much, which I guess is it's a, it's a lot better now, but obviously still could... Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, actually. And I wanted to touch on this is like yeah, representation in electronic music, because it there's I mean, so many, especially after last year with the Black Lives Matter movement, like really pushing to the forefront. There have been now like so many dialogues about the whitewashing of electronic music and representation of people in color, of color on lineups. We've all seen it. We've all spoken about it. And, you know, I, I, I kind of want to talk about, in fact, even here, um, Going back to last year, I did an article with my friend Helena Starr and we did an article about the MOBOs and how there's no, at the moment and for years, there's no um, acknowledgement of electronic music on the programme, which feels wrong considering electronic music's roots and all the amazing black artists making electronic music that are out there. So when they started in the in the mid-90s, Jungle and Garage were acknowledged. Goldie won Best Album, I think, in 96 and I think... Fabio and Groove Rider, and there are there are a few you know names that were categorized, but then it kind of dropped off, you know, turn of the two thousands. And I wanted to just have this conversation with you guys in the room about this representation or lack of for black people in electronic music. The way I've always seen it, I think, was obviously just like touched on like artists naturally, especially in the electronic music scene, were essentially faceless. So if you were buying vinyl, you would just see their names, mm. Marshall yeah. Jefferson. And like, you would I mean, known. I mean, you know, I would be like, yeah, okay, cool. But like other people wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah. And I think when you're moving into an age then where maybe you've got, uh, say for instance, publications might put people on covers or, uh, you know, they're writing about people and then you start to see their pictures, then I guess without realising people are starting to move towards a scene in which obviously then I don't know they want to make it more marketable yeah. in, in, in that I sense I totally agree that's that's exactly what I, I was the point I was going to say it's like I think that the whitewashing of the industry came along as soon as we had to be more visible as soon mm. as social media and all that came yeah. came along because if I look at the club I've been there for sort of 20 years so in the first 10 years if you look at the programming there's females there's LGBTQ community there's everybody being represented across the lineups and then you look at the last decade and it's mainly white men. Mm. And it's like, what happened in that last decade? And it was because, as I said, we used to book people. I never used to know what they looked like until they turned up at the club half the time. Do you know what I mean? Because you weren't booking of how popular someone was. It literally was on how they DJed, what, what the quality didn't didn't matter what they looked like or what gender they were. It wasn't something that you even asked or even thought about. Mm. You just booked, you know. I was bringing a lot of black artists over from America as well. 
And, you know, they were all being represented at the club. But then all of a sudden, when we had to be more visible and people wanted to write articles about you and stuff like that, like, you know, maybe people of colour doesn't sell, doesn't, it's not, you know, you're not going to have a black artist on the front of your magazine. They, that was, that was not norm, you know. Yeah. It was like, you're lucky if you could have something in the charts. I remember crying when Soul to Soul got to number one. I know it's really mental, but it was the first time because they were, they, we used to go to their parties at Africa Centre and they were kind of like part of our community. And it was the first time that we'd sort of seen someone from our community yeah. in a commercial chart. It, it seems bizarre now because it's just, just quite norm. But yeah. it just that kind of thing was not happening. You wouldn't see it. You'd put, I'd, even working at Strictly Rhythm, you'd have like a dance track and we we in in the UK office we used to have to get things licensed because it was an American label mm. so we'd have to license things to to UK label you know they would never pick something up or they would ruin it and sort of change it like so that it sounded much more not less soulful or less black kind of thing in order for it to have commercial mm. success there'd be all these brilliant songs like that we were getting through strictly rhythm great vocals mm. couldn't get them licensed for love or money because the artist was black and they didn't want to show them, you know what I mean? And yeah, I definitely totally 100% agree that it's it's it was down to the social media and, and sort wow. of just having more visibility was why people stopped booking those that kind of thing. You know, it's definitely a massive factor from my experience and what I've seen. You know, people didn't want to, suddenly didn't want to do interviews with certain people. A lot of the pioneers that we were bringing over, suddenly people didn't want to, didn't want to do things. I've got more bits to say, but Mary, did you have anything to add? Do you know, I'm just thinking about a conversation that I had in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter. And it was a chat that I had with a really close friend of mine called Femi Colioso, who's a drummer in Ezra Collective. And we had a really long conversation about many different aspects. And we talked for a number of hours about mentoring and actually how important mentoring is. And Femi said one thing to me as part of that conversation that stuck with me. And he said, can you imagine how different the world would be if every single young person had a mentor, you know, and a helping hand to offer them some support and said, come on, I'll help you with that. Mm. I'll give you a hand up. And, you know, Femi does a lot as a drummer. I think all of you know that he does a lot of free lessons as a drummer and, I have sort of, um, in the aftermath of that conversation, invoked a couple of other different mentoring projects. And I just think what Sherelle is doing is so incredible in terms of world building with Beautiful, the project that she's just announced. And I feel to a degree it's up to all of us to figure out how we can empower the next generation, isn't Mm -hmm. it? That's the way forward, I think, for me. And it's about sharing the experience and the knowledge and the love and um, that sense of encouragement that you can give to a young person and showing them that actually you can build a different pathway. And and I think all of us can be part of that. And I would love for Sherelle to talk to us about this. Yes, I really, really want to know about this. It looks sick. Obviously, you discussing about like whitewashing, essentially something obviously I was thinking about when we've had countless conversations at Mixmag, Jesus <laughs> yeah. Christ, like we would sit there and talk about various different ways or, you know, articles. I've helped in articles with, with Jaguar before about certain stuff, especially when it comes to the LGBTQI mm-hmm. side of yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, going back to obviously what was just being said, you know, the, the, the whitewashing side of at least jungle anyway is, is insane. Yeah. Because obviously taking out specific, uh, you know, samples out to make it seem more white the 
conversation around like IDM. I had Square Pusher recently in for uh, the residency, and we were t- he was talking about how he feels deeply uncomfortable about the fact of that the name itself, IDM, and and, what, and essentially what it could have st- stood for in terms of like uh, I guess the person who created it didn't realize like maybe in the back of their mind that they were essentially, you know, intelligent dance music. Yeah. Even though the his- yeah. historically, obviously, where it's coming from and all this kind of stuff, it leads to, say, for instance, like Jungle and, and Breakbeat and Hardcore and stuff like that. Knowing all of, obviously, all of that kind of history makes me super sad. You know, you've got amazing trailblazers at the likes of, like, uh, reinforced records who I think don't get enough love or attention in comparison to other counterparts, considering how much they helped people um what their parties did for people um you know a young goldie for instance you know designing their logos and stuff like that and whatever and getting the inspiration for his own label through obviously their work and the stuff that they did and like the instrumentation obviously them moving from all the various different aliases they have of like manix to like four hero is insane and then ronnie size as well Mm. which i believe is you know he's had a lot of at least you know back in, in the day had a lot of you know awards you know yeah. a mercury music award and all this kind of stuff and whatever that's on obviously that was on jowser's label i believe yeah i think so yeah and all of these things are amazing historical things but there is you can see a point in jungle where it kind of just peters off yeah. and then goes into you know drum and bass and like amazing initiatives like say for instance eq50 which is run by dj flight and mantra obviously are doing things to counteract that for me anyway, like I love music, I love the history of music. I've always been intrigued about what whitewashing has done to music. Yeah. Being one of the very few people, if not maybe one of the only few people in my school that was really interested in dance music made me kind of I was uncomfortable to say that I really liked disclosure. And it's, you know, really? <laughs> it's like disclosure. Yeah, cuz I, you know, when I'm in school in Woodford, if already there's a disparity of how many people in Woodford, uh, just to obviously clarify for everyone listening at home, Woodford's place in Essex and also London. So part of it is like in London, part of it's in Essex. Majority white. And the school I went to was majority white. And at the time I was going to school, you were into only very few fair genres. And if you were as a black person said that you were interested in electronic music, they would consider you to be more white than it would be black. Because of the music. Because of the music. And right, their, the music, right. uh, with regards to their um, interpretation and their representation of music at the time, at least, when they look at dance music, they think it's only white people. I love, you know, Chemical Brothers. I love Basement Jacks. I love Daft Punk. But these are the people that I, like, mm. was, like, obsessed with, especially, like, digital love, music video and all this kind of stuff and whatever. But I get why my counterparts in terms of age range would think it's white because the only faces you are seeing on the TV mm. for dance music in terms of big dance music, like a fat boy slim yep. as well, are are white. Whereas I knew, I felt uncomfortable. I was like, no, but the the singers, mm. the, the things that I'm listening to, they don't, I can sense the origin. Like I can feel it. Like yeah. almost like, do you know what I mean? Like, so when fi- finally understanding Strictly Rhythm or like, you know, going, finding their bits and going, oh my God, these are all the bits that I was listening to from a young because of an aunt or, you know, my yeah, mum or whatever. Yeah makes you super happy because you're like, okay, cool, sick. And then when you start to do your research even more and then you're going into Chicago and in places like Detroit and you're like, wait, hold up. How is it <laughs> How now? is this? How yeah. is this? How yeah. is this moved on from where it's moved on to? And it's naturally, obviously, like I said, people were nameless, eventually moved into periods of obviously, you know, having to market themselves, 
unfortunately, we're all very aware, it doesn't matter if it's music or sports or anything. Unfortunately, there is marketing issues there, obviously, which if you're, you know, if you are, you are white, you probably, you know, go further with regards mm-hmm. to marketability. Going back to Beautiful, the idea, obviously, with the label and the essentially initiative was that thinking over Black Lives Matter stuff, which for me, I have, I was always in two minds about because obviously Black Lives Matter this time round isn't necessarily the first time round. Yeah. That's the thing that kind yeah. of makes me go, oh, it hasn't been the first time this has been spoken about. They've, you know, shut down airports with, you know, protests and stuff like that in the UK. And it was seen as like this, how dare they do such a thing? Black lives matter, yeah. all lives kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And they've been doing it for years. It's, it's created by black queer people. And I think obviously having the thought process, having the time to be off, worried about countless other things. Do you know what I mean? You know, I was learning to do production on the basis of controlling my own anxiety about whether we were going to go back out again. And then being in that mindset anyway was like a super weird thing to be in. And it just dawned on me basically, yeah, like, if you're unaware of, say, for instance, the history of what dance music or electronic music is, how are you able to counteract the some of the stuff that goes on? Because it's all well and good people be like, oh, but, you know, I, I don't see colour or I, you know, but, you know, uh, Susie Rick- Ricardo Villalobos. Ricardo Villalobos has been doing it for years and da 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 And it's like, well, actually, no, because he might have not known he's actually influenced by X, Y and Z. Mm. You know, well, what about Kraftwerk? Well, actually, Kraftwerk have been also influenced by X, Y, and Z in terms of like James Brown and soul music and stuff like that before they got onto, you know, doing electronic music. Yeah. And if you don't know that stuff, then obviously if someone says all these things to you, then you don't know how to counteract back. And I think that's the issue. So with, with Beautiful, at least in workshops anyway, for younger, we're not too young actually, because with Represent, I learned that actually there's a lot of age ranges that need to be addressed. So from 18 upwards... I don't think we're going to have an age limit on it, to be honest with you, because it depends on what's going on in your life. But people need to be able to be educated about the history of dance music as a whole, certain genres and how they trickle down. Some people might not even realise that Jungle has reference to techno or, you know, like Kevin Sorderson, mm. you know what I mean, all that kind of stuff. Teaching people about the connections will only, I think, personally make it stronger for the person to actually play their own music, talk about the music, talk about ways to counteract certain things, and then, you know, give them the confidence that they know much about their music to say, for instance, if they come across someone who might not understand things or might be bad about certain ways that apparently music is in dance. Actually, no, because X, Y and Z. And then obviously you have the production side of things, which, you know, we've been to Red Bull, uh, you know, yeah. the meetups there and stuff like that. Like they always do, like did at least anyway, like the production workshops, the DJ workshops. I'd like to do that, obviously. And get people the knowledge and the tools really to work that out and then the label side of things is obviously just getting new and old together so with this compilation there's people that are completely unknown with the likes of people who have been on really big labels and stuff like that and whatever have recently had success with amazing like albums and stuff like that and then the next phase for me is that you know we we sit here you know talking about maybe there's not enough women in music there's not enough people of color in music how do we counteract lack of bookings? How do we counteract lack of representation? And it dawned on me again, was like, wait a minute, how many actual club owners of like within our scene are actually black or POC? Yeah. And then I was like, oh my God, wait, okay, cool. So, you know, initially, yeah, I'm going to come out of label and uh, yeah, I was going to do workshops, but then it dawned on me that a long-term plan I would like is for Beautiful to own clubs within like London 
um, and other places around like in and around Europe and then hopefully branch that out into the US. But the the main thing is for me, like I'm very concerned of legacy, very concerned of like community based things. And I just want to preserve amazing work that's already been within our scene. I want to make sure that community is built and stays the way it is because losing places like, you know, when you you guys, you know, Fabric was lost for a bit and yeah. then came back, that was going to be a huge blow to the likes of the, everyone's music in, in, in this room, right? When smaller clubs, even like birthdays, get shut down in Dalston, yeah. that's a huge yeah. blow to someone like myself with regards to, that's a, a lot of footwork nights went on there. And in London, and yeah, you're like small venues where small you can venues, put on your yeah. first ever club night. And you know, yeah. some maybe some people might not come. I've definitely played to an empty room before. Do you know what I mean it's fun because you've got a sound system yeah. to yourself? But it's about cultivating the 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 the, the genres and the, and the scene and the people that come there. About building this um, tangible thing, which it, unfortunately is being lost within the UK and stuff like that. So with beautiful, it would be nice to move into that space. I mean, I said it would be nice. We will move into that space because I find myself sometimes saying stuff like that, but we will, we will move into that space eventually where there's a tangible place here that is safeguarded by myself, will be owned, black owned, mm-hmm. and then I'm not yeah. going to you know, be kicking people out or, you know, this night can't go on here. I think some promoters really do, unfortunately, you know, take on nights and they might not necessarily believe in what they are doing yeah. and they know that it makes a lot of money considering you know everything that's gone on recently so I really want to counteract that because I want to make sure that all feelings around stuff are like genuine and and, and um yeah I desperately want it I hope I, I it will work I will make it work yes yeah, because I think sick, I'm just Shaz. sick and tired of stuff but in the same regards to you obviously you're aware you know you you're doing initiatives as well to make sure yeah. that people just get the right foot up I think yeah, just, I yeah. think what I like to see is that I feel like our generation is, even though, you know, we're kind of in our um, mid to late 20s, it's like yeah. we're already looking back at what we can improve for the future, which I think is quite, yeah. I don't know, I feel like it's quite a unique thing. I feel like I always say our generation is going to be the ones to like help save the world because we kind of already thinking about I how think we can are. improve. I totally agree. I, wish, I feel like we yeah. sort of did the struggle and now we're kind of like, <laughs> getting older now I just want to give stuff back I just want to sort of share my knowledge and help to evolve other people and elevate other you know next generation but it's like you guys are super young and you're already got like a voice and I feel it makes me really happy actually because it's like I feel like we've we have slowly created an environment where women or young people kind of feel more confident to speak out like I probably wouldn't I I was quite silent I was that person that was sort of kind of like hiding behind the scenes I you know, even doing things like this, I I would sort of generally I used to say no, really, because I I I hated being that visible person, and I hated being the the, the I would leave that to the artists and the you know to be the face of fabric or, or or whatever I was doing, I would leave it always up to somebody else, and I was sort of yeah, I I kind of was silent, not... I mean, and I feel really bad for that because it's only in the last couple of years, and specifically as yeah. well last year with the with the George Floyd stuff and mm. Black Lives Matter that that I realised that, you know, visibility is sort of key. It's like mm. I didn't see people and because I didn't see people in those positions, I felt in, in certain spaces, I felt like I wasn't welcome. So yeah. that means that other people are thinking that yeah. as well. And so it's, yeah. it's really important for me to say, yes, I've actually been the person behind Fabric on Saturdays or and feel just the, the just importance to, change, yeah, of your to make voice. someone else feel confident yeah. about doing it. You know, I need someone else to be in my Gladys Pizarro, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, I need yeah. to be that sort of thing. And um, I, I feel a bit gutted that it's, it took me so long to 
to have the confidence to sort of speak out and to realise the importance of of it. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I just sort of feel like I kind of was like one of those people that sort of sh- shrunk in shrunk no, themselves almost because I yeah. didn't want to be. But it was a different time though. I yeah, think. yeah. I because of you know people like you, Judy and Marianne. You know, we you've created a, a space for us. You have where you know I can do a podcast like this where we can have these open honest yeah. and hopefully mm. forward-thinking conversations to help change the world for the better where Shez can set up her beautiful label and have the confidence to you know actually say how we feel and be yeah. like you know this isn't cool this isn't right and draw from our own experiences and want to make it a better place yeah I wouldn't be too hard on yourself either yeah. because I can only imagine you potentially might have been one of very few uh black women within the music scene which I I've I think you there is no way in there's a lot of um guilt i think we we can feel as 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 black and poc women to even speak up or we should have done stuff or, or whatever but i don't think we i i don't know me and jagger are just very aware of obviously the, the times that we're in now that yeah. we're able to say these things and actually mm. be able to my sister you know had unfortunately issues at her workplace and you know she's in she's 40 um and she had issues at her workplace where you know they they took her and perceived her to be uh, you know a, a particular kind of person just yeah. based on race and that that didn't I mean it worked out for her in, in the best way possible obviously because actually she paid her job but um, you know it was think things were different yeah and I just don't was. think you should ever be too hard on yourself because even your general presence and making mm. sure that you know you will always have in the back of mind because of your experience that you, who you're booking who's coming in who's coming through you know, yeah, and just yeah, just by being there yeah, and being in your role and what you've done, yeah. like it, just by being visible, that that is something amazing. Yeah, you know, to see other black girls and and people of color can look up to you and be like, oh, maybe I'll, you know, work at fabric or, or in promotions yeah. or in events yeah. and at clubs. You know, that even that that's very rare. Is amazing. Yeah, Promo- especially in promotions, I would say. Yeah, it's very, yeah. It's very rare. I think as well as sort of like. You sort of you have the problems as being a female, but then you have the problems that come on top of that of being black as well. Sure. And and you know it, it's this huge man's world. And sort of a lot of the time, sort of for me in the past, if I did speak up or if I did speak my actual truth, um, you know, I could be vilified for it. It's so a lot of it's been my progress has been at the expense of my own culture for the early days, mm. you know. And I had to kind of almost quash some of that in order for me to move forward. Mm. Like, which is really sad. Like I'm like. You know why? Why should I have to sort of do that? But we get we kind of almost conditioned as we grow as you yes. grow up. Sort of thing. Yeah. You, you get used to having to do those kind of things in order to 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 move forward and ignore certain comments or a little little microaggressions they call mm. it now. But like you know, you kind of ignore that and you get used to doing that as a black female or as a black person or a person yeah. of color. You get used to sort of just go okay. Well, I won't. I want to save them. I don't. I don't want to say that about myself because I don't want that other person to be embarrassed or to feel awkward or, or anything. You know. So uh, instead, I'll I'll take the flack and I'll take it and I'll just sort of let mm, them. Yeah. And it, you know, but I'm I'm just not going there anymore. I I learned a lot during lockdown as well, and sort of the the, the last few years, I've I've just really learned that it's time to sort of speak up and just mm. to sort of tell people it as it is and not be so worried about what the consequence is because I know that I'm actually be I'm actually right and I should yeah. I should do and the and only way to people who to change are things is to call you. shit out isn't it and you we're know? all gonna back you like yeah, this is the people, thing yeah. I feel like you know women in music and you know I feel like there is a strong kind of 
solidarity mm. community. Yeah. Um, Marianne, what about you and your experiences? I just want to say what a remarkable orator you are. Yeah. Though. What a powerful storyteller <laughs> and you. what an inspirational journey you've had. You oh, need to share this you. like all day you every day. write a book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> I'd read your book. Well, if only I could remember half of it all. <laughs> <laughs> I always need prompts and then I can just roll. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's remarkable though. Women of our generation have had all kinds of stuff said to them. I was thinking about a funny story that I could tell you. A very first remark that was made to me by somebody in a, a position of great power in an institution that is very famous. And I went to work for this particular place. And the first thing he said to me beyond welcome to this institution was, now then, is there any pornography we're going to need to buy back? Have you ever featured in any films or photographs that You're we're joking. going to need to buy back so they don't end up in the press? What? And I can laugh about that now, but I, I did think to myself at the time, you know, would you really seriously put that on the table as an opening gambit Don't to a man? That's outrageous. So, what and, did you say out of interest? Wow. <laughs> I just laughed in his face, actually, and I said, no, I, I don't think you need to worry on that score. But <laughs> you, you'd be astonished at the types of things that kind yeah. of came in our direction as, I suppose, women of the same generation. Absolutely, yeah. I mean... Uh, just stuff that you just wouldn't say now, mm. do you know what I mean? So PC, the stuff that I had to sort of take, you know, and also they sort of, or even sort of just in the even in the early days of the of the club, where no, you know, people wouldn't think see that I was the person that maybe was programming it and doing it. You know, they would always think I was a, a, in a lesser what they saw as a lesser position, mm. you know, and I'd sort of be in the booth or something, and they'd go. Oh, were you girlfriends or something like? You know what I mean? I'd be like, no, and, you know, or or are you just the person just going to get me drinks? Are you, are you can I can you get me a drink? Can you you know just thinking you're kind of the lucky? They just cannot get their head around the fact that you you are the sole person that's programming. It's like and other people sort of always saying to me, oh, you know, is someone else doing it with you? It's like mm. must be something. You must be just doing the logistics or something. You know, you can't be you actually booking the the artists. It's like. It's not. It's not. You're not a female's job. You know. Mm. You're not meant oh. to be a, a leader or, or or anything. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
I feel like women have been, unfortunately, sometimes always the background of like, unfortunately, various subcultures. Thus, meaning just in general, obviously through history, it'd be quite yeah, obvious why. But, the back. but kind of pushed to the back or not necessarily the leaders. I know that there's yeah. obviously other um, subcultures, at least anyway, that that's not the case. But it, it does feel that way in, in terms of history when you're looking at certain pictures or yeah. like who's the representation of, of that particular genre that unfortunately, you know... Um, it, it it just it just is the case. Yeah, to really. add to add to that, like the whole point, the whole the, where this episode idea came from was off the back of a, an article I wrote for Mix Mag last year about the unsung black women pioneers of house music that I wrote, um, and because because I was thinking of things to write about, and I was like, you know, you hear about all the male kind of pioneers and founders, the Belleville Three. Larry Levan, Frankie Knuckles, you know, all the greats. Mm. But it's like, where where were the yeah. women? Like, there must have been women DJs there. And then I learned about Sharon White and I learned about Stacey Hotwax Hale. And I spoke to Smoking Joe, I spoke to DJ Paulette from Manchester and, and Ultranate as well. Yeah. And it was like the craziest batch of interviews I've ever done. And it was it was a real labour of love. And, and the, the reach of that article, I'm so glad it's been out there because I've I've had people who've been in the industry for years, male, and um, they've like, I've never heard of any of these women. Like, well, they've probably heard of Ochinate, but they haven't mm, heard of yeah. these women. And I, it was like, it took me, who was 25 at the time, to do my own research and write the article because no one else had. And I thought that was wild. And it, it does, from talking to them, it is like, why are women repeatedly written out of, of the narrative of history time and time again? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> why? It's a hard one. I mean, well, I guess it's just men have always been the leaders and we're in a male-dominated industry. And um, yeah, it's down to us now to sort of change things, Absolutely. I guess. You know, I mean, nowadays, like, I think we've kind of, we're, we're getting there. We've created an environment where where women or people of colour can sort of start to share their stories with more confidence and, yeah. and, 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 and know that they're going to get some kind of backup. And like, you know, women and some men are, are calling shit out now. And, yeah. you know, you can feel a little bit more like that person's going to have my back if I say this. So there's many a time where I feel like I've been in a been in a, in a meeting and been shouted down by, by a, a male person, like really shouting and screaming. And everybody sat around me and no one's backing me up. And you're just Yeah, there's like, this weird unsaid thing amongst uh, sometimes men that they don't necessarily call each other out for. Their, their, their shit yeah which um <laughs> always grinds my gears when I'm like on a night out and their someone's friend has done something stupid oh I see yeah and they're they're talking to me and it's like no no talk to them talk to them because mm. they've just done something stupid I think there's um an element of I, I guess power that can come in with writing out women under the same breath I feel again, you know, coming from this generation, I actually generally in, in some parts probably think that actually some people really just didn't even notice yeah. all of these things yeah. happening and stuff like that and whatever, like, the you know, misogyny um, and now even misogyny war and like sexism, yeah. didn't even real as they were being so, because it was just so, it was just so much a thing. You know, there's a lot of... um. Well, sort of normalised. Yeah, a lot of normalisation. Yeah. If you think yeah. about it, it's like generations to generations, generations, generations. You know, I, I can talk to my mum all day about, you know, how she feels about like racism and stuff like that and whatever. And, you know, she tells me some horrific stories. And then she looks yeah. at what's happening now and she's just like, well, 
do you know actually it's kind of kind of moved on in in a better way and I'm sometimes like what do you what do you mean it's just yeah. it's become well it's obviously become you know racism has become more insidious and same thing with sexism and all this kind of stuff and whatever but this element of I don't know we think that we're lucky but I guess there's always just there's just natural improvement that just needs yes. to keep happening until you know it doesn't yeah in some happen. ways things improve in some ways you go backwards yeah yeah you know? and even with I kind of want to talk about sexual assault here like with with this podcast I said off air but with this podcast, the reason it became a thing is because last autumn, around the sort of time when there are allegations about Eric Murillo with sexual assault and that all coming to light, it was really like stressful time to be reading about it. And I just felt so compelled to put a podcast together with some women in the industry and just talk about and, and unpack that whole situation. And that was sort of the first ever proto-Utopia Talks episode leading to where we are here today. and. It feels like kind of like we've spoken about, we are living in a world now where I think, you know, women and, and non-binary and, and people are speaking out about these experiences. And I think it's hard as well when you're in a male dominated industry that, you know, if, if something has happened to you in a club, whether it's sexual assault or feeling uncomfortable, etc. Like it is really hard to have the confidence to come out and say something when you could be telling it to a bunch of guys and they might not understand or acknowledge or or care I've uh, how do I describe this I've lost my shit countless times at men in the club for on the behalf of friends whether it be inappropriate dancing not understanding when to leave uh, mm. groping you name it it's, it's things in which obviously I've I'm quite you know if anyone has seen the boiler room you know quite protective over space anyway very protective obviously over over my friends too it's an interesting thing actually my mum saw my sister recently with my little niece and uh, my mum saw my sister uh, bend down and she's like, oh oh gosh your uh, jumpsuit is, is too short Charmin like oh my god like you might want to change it I was like what's wrong I was like what's so short about it she's like oh no no you know you don't attract like you know attention from people and stuff like that it's like a harmless comment obviously mm, do you know what I mean if, yeah. if, you know fair enough if it's you know short but then it it kind of dawned on me that she's saying it on the basis of protecting my sister because of potentiality of someone looking or, or touching or whatever. Mm. And I was saying to my mum, I was like, oh, like, no, I appreciate obviously what you're saying, mum, but you shouldn't probably say that to Sharman or, or at least you're like reinforcing, allowing this kind of behaviour. Like what you're saying basically is saying that protect yourself from a guy, but the guy's going to do what you know they want. But that kind of uh, thought process, I think, need, gradually, I think, maybe our generation are weeding out because we don't kind of have those, um, we don't want to hear those kind of things. You know, even the school skirts, I once upon oh, a time yeah. wore a yeah. skirt in my... In my, with, in my the hair. with the hair. Yes, with hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jaguar, Jaguar knows um, I how know. much I, I adore... A skirt and long hair. adore that on. time when I had hair. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like we're wearing a skirt and stuff, and obviously people are asking to roll it down. And I'm thinking in my head, I mean, come on, this is like, I can't, I can't show my knee. It's like it's your what? fault, and it's my fault. Yeah. And I think there's inherit, um, inherited kind of thought process of obviously has a has a has a woman or a non-binary person of how you're supposed to conduct yourself yeah. for the yeah. basis of the other person. And I think that just doesn't help also in the club situation because then it might adhere or you might change certain ways that you dress or you might not want to necessarily feel comfortable in a club. One of the down points actually for the boiler room was that there was too many girls there. 
and there was loads of comments commenting too many. on. So there was too loads many. of people commenting on the fact that there were so many girls there, and they were not happy about this, and they were was that trying men, to pinpoint. Men obviously, they're trying to pinpoint certain things about the women that they they didn't like about them, and all this kind of stuff and whatever. And then you know, on the flip side, obviously, you've got you know people, you know, women and non-binary people that obviously are able to come to my gigs. When they do see them at the gigs, they're more in the front. Yeah, because they, like, they feel seen well, and yeah. they feel like they can be at the front. I will, you know, naturally, we'll kick off, obviously, if anything does go down. But, like, I'm happy to see that, that they feel like they can take the space up at the front. Because, yeah. you know, that's not usually the case when you, you know, go to, to certain gigs and stuff like mm. that and whatever. And I think there's a lot of um, behaviour that needs to be, I think, un- unlearned within our yeah. scene. I think clubs could uh, be a lot safer. There is not necessarily such thing as a safe space because obviously you're always going to get someone that's going to ruin that. But amazing things that I think BBZ have done with their club nights or Pussy Palace mm. with regards to having people specifically there to make people feel comfortable yeah. have been really helpful. I think the group that I'm more, I'm very concerned about, especially as well going on, on nights out are trans people, mainly yeah. because of the fact that, you know, if you're going out and you meet the wrong kind of crowd and stuff, so, you know, something bad can happen. There's plenty of deaths that have occurred for black trans women within the US and stuff, which just is like absolutely like gross and disgusting and it's not really being taken care of at all. And I think more can be done, obviously, to just make sure that people get home safely. You know, even the, the get home text. Yeah with the lady who um you know got kidnapped and um, yeah got yeah. you know that whole aspect that someone actually had asked her that question and still that that had happened it's not something in which i look at and go i can't believe that happened it's just the general respect for women and non-binary people within mm. society i guess that yeah. just needs to be rectified and i think even in that situation with such a big dj how many people have probably if, come forward and said something but it's, because it's it's him People were like, oh, but you know, yeah, when it's, it's a, him, when it's a super he can't, yeah. he can't, he, he wouldn't do that. Well, they're kind of enablers, really, aren't yeah. they? All the people around them, you know, they're enabling him to carry on behaving like turn that. Turn a blind eye. Yeah, they just turn a blind eye because of who people are. And this has happened all the way throughout history, really. And there's just so much, I feel like there's just so much to dismantle. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many systems yeah. that we just need to dismantle and start looking at them again. And, you know, even just sort of simply, even even at Fabric, I think we we kind of are, are a safe space. But like you said, there's always people that ruin that kind of space. And mm. we've still got a lot to learn. And that's what we've been doing in, in this lockdown as well, is like thinking about how we can make sure that our the experience you come to the club is completely 100% safe for everybody, yeah. you know. And I think all clubs and, 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 and spaces, they need to look at recruiting. It starts with, like, your staff, the behind the scenes and seeing things. And as I said, keep saying about visibility. It's like you have to see people like yourself. And, you know, we're taking advice from um, the LGBTQ community and, you know, what what's it, what do we need to do to make sure that you're safe if you're coming to our club? You know what kind of things we do and and listening to them, and that's what that's what I think everybody needs to take on board to try and make their spaces safer. Yeah, definitely. You know, Marianne? I think also this is why Sherelle's point about ownership is so important. You know, going forward, that ambition to actually own these places, and then you can set the agenda. Then you can set your own yeah. agenda. Yeah, completely. Mm, and you can clear out all the shit from the past and just say, do you know what? This is we're starting again at this moment, and this is how we're going to roll in this place. So, yeah, you know, that's the way we're doing it. Like it or clear off. Mm. You know, and and that's a really powerful thing. Mm. I'm yeah. thinking about the dubstep community that I was I very much go involved into that. with. Yeah. yeah, and I guess in those 
very tiny embryonic scenes. There's a different kind of relationship between people, really. It felt like a family. It was wonderful, you know. And right at the very epicentre of that scene was an amazing woman called Sarah Lockhart. And she's now head of A&R at Sony, actually. But at the time, she established the record label Temper. She put together Forward the Club Night. And she was also heavily involved with Rinse uh, alongside Genius. And they created the campaign to win the licence. And she is one of the most influential people that I know. But there were so many women involved with that scene, actually. An amazing woman that I used to call the Red Princess, a writer called Melissa Bradshaw, and uh, a photographer, uh, Georgina Cook, Drums of the South, who just documented that whole scene so beautifully. There was Steffi, who organised all the DMZ raves and was very much involved with the labels, still involved with yeah. Deep Medi now. Yeah. And also Amy, must shout out Amy, she was on the door at Forward always. And, I mean, the scene was so small. I, I'm, I'm thinking back to the days that I first saw Scream playing at Forward. There were three people in the room. No <laughs> and that was Scream's girlfriend at the time, Charlotte, Hatcher, who's another DJ, and the barman. And that was it, you know. And it, was, it still remains one of the wow. greatest sets that I've seen of all time. Where was that? What, that was at Forward at Plastic oh, People. Plastic, yeah. Of course, rest in peace, Plastic People. Oh, my God. Yeah. There was a kind of sense that everybody in that very small community had a different role, you know. And we did move very much like a family. And I remember the first time Mala booked a, <laughs> he booked a coach to go up to Leeds and it, it just felt like we were changing the world. You know, the <laughs> idea that Iration Steppers would book DMZ at the West Indian Centre to play room two, you know, and we all jumped on this coach, went bumbling up the, up the motorway, up to the West Indian Centre. And yeah. I don't know, everybody took great care of one another. You know, there, there was that real sense of community. Yeah. And I think also that was because... At that point, really, the music, um, so much of it was unreleased. It was right on the cusp of the internet beginning to break, so MySpace was coming into play mm -hmm. and you had the dubstep forum and stuff like that. But for the main part, only a fraction of this music was ever released. And obviously, if you got a booking at one of the big clubs, so DMZ or Forward, it was such a big deal for the producers. And they used to build loads and loads of new tunes and cut them onto dub plate. But they would be the only people who had the dub plates. Maybe Youngster, who was another big DJ in the scene, had a lot of dubs. And then I would get a file, usually, to play on the radio, you know. But what was so beautiful about that time was that if you wanted to be involved as part of that community, you had to be present in the clubs because that would be where you were going to hear the music. You couldn't get it anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. And I think that was why that sense of family became so strong. You know, Code 9, all the Hyperdub family, obviously, just absolutely right at the epicentre of that scene, really, too. And I feel that those bonds and those types of relationships have proliferated over the last 15 years, yeah, you know, and they're still just as equally as strong, you know. And I almost can conceive of that as, as a way in which, I don't know, beautiful might unfold for a new generation with that sort of sense of family at the epicentre, that sense of everybody looking out for each other mm -hmm. and that sense of real passion and respect for one another right across cultures, across genders. Yeah. Um, mm. And yeah, it was, it was a beautiful kind of utopian time in a way mm. to use the... The name that of your sounds, podcast. This one's gorgeous. <laughs> Were there any moments ever where you felt, I don't know, like maybe if you, because you travelled a lot as well as, as a woman, 
I don't know if you're ever on your own or just surrounded by guys, but was there ever times where you felt uncomfortable in that sense? Not with that community, no. I have to say, I feel really privileged to have been accepted into that world. And, you know, it's kind of interesting even to, you know, when I look at the way that Burial moved, that was a really exciting thing to watch as well because there were only a couple of people who really knew what he looked like. So it was me, Martin Clark and Code 9, and that was about it. So even as he began to, you know, break as a really big star, he was able to move around in the clubs where his music was actually being played, but in a completely anonymous way. Nobody yeah. knew who he who he was, so he could he could to- he could test his own music on these massive rigs <laughs> without being besieged. And and there was there was a kind of element of that as well that I reflecting on it that I think has been really successful for him um, as just the beautiful, quite introverted soul that he is. You know. He wasn't the sort of person that you could ever have put into a live environment. He's never played a gig ever once. And he's not the sort of person that you could ever, I suppose, put into the very tempestuous environment of social media because he's, he's I don't know, I'm not going to say fragile, that's the wrong word. I'll just say introverted as a human being, mm. but absolutely pure and beautiful soul. And I, I, I always thought there's a lot to learn by the way that Burial has chosen to move as well, you know, with, with great stealth and, and quietly and allowing the work to speak mm. for himself. And I, I realise that doesn't work for everybody, but I don't know, it's, it's certainly one really interesting pathway. Um, but anyway, <laughs> there are my dubstep stories. Oh, I love that. Um, no, it's true, true though about the community because I feel like it was like that with dance music in the early days as well. It's like we were all one big family and sort of community, which still is now, don't get me wrong, but... We used to be a bit surprised that in the last sort of, say, 10 years, if, if someone sort of gets into trouble and they're at the, they go to the paramedics or, you know, they're mm. not feeling too good, they've drunk too much or whatever, the amount of times in the last few years where it would be like suddenly the friends had disappeared or they lost their friends, that story all the time. And I was like, when we used to go out, we'd go out in like cruise. And there's like no way like my friends would have left me. You yeah. know what I mean? There was always someone in your crew that was the the person that no matter how wasted they got, they were still going to look after, look out for you. We all looked out for each other. You know, there was no way you were going to get in that cab home without your mate unless you knew what, what where they were, what they were up to. And it was just sort of so fickle that, you know, it, what we notice is that this is happening a lot lately. It's like, where are your mates? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen them for hours. Or, you know, just been wandering around the club on your own or something. It's like... Wow, what's happened? You know, where's the love? I think this is, this is the thing. Love needs to kind of like soar again. That's yeah, what this so uh, our community was built on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'd like, love to build on that and, and just hear from you guys what you think those big changes that you've seen over the years have been. I think for, I guess, our generation, we've been via social media pretty much half of yeah. our lives. Yeah. yeah. more than, yeah. So I do see that where people have, but left each other and like there's just like some alone person just yeah. walking down the street but there's for some strange reason I think that the intimacy between our generation is like well they're they're on they're on this they're on the phone they're on the phone and stuff or they're yeah. on the laptop that thus meaning they're going to be fine because they're just gonna upload a picture of it I seen their story like an hour ago yeah so true you know they they were they were fine an hour ago and yeah. obviously you know we're aware of obviously lots can happen in an hour and I think there's definitely still love very much for, yeah. for everyone. I, I just think that we go by, oh, if they have, if their story is still going, 
yeah. two minutes later, then they must and be fine. And you can be there for someone, there for someone by talking to them online. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's different yeah. now, whereas years ago, you'd be there for someone because yeah. you'd be physically, physically with them. Yeah, because well, yeah, the, the only way you could, I guess, talk to them was via, like, you know, like the house phone and stuff. I was going to say that sometimes I think people are more concerned with, like, the moment mm. than the actual, like, actually, like, being present. And sometimes I think if a friend is, like, got too drunk or had far too many pills or whatever, like, some people are like, oh, for fuck's sake, this person's ruined the night. Just put them in the cab or send them off that, mm. that way. And then, you know, because we're actually more concerned about sometimes being very much looking at the DJ, which I think is obviously a very new thing. Like, I, yeah. I can imagine, obviously, people didn't really give a fuck about where the DJ was in the booth. They were just dancing in it. And now it just feels like when you're DJing and stuff, like, people are just staring at you yeah. with their phones yeah. and stuff. I guess well, it's definitely one thing that's changed, isn't it? It's like, in nowadays, me, your music's sort of not enough anymore. Mm. Was like yeah. in, you know when we started, like it was just like this is good DJ or it's not a good DJ, you know, and you book them. But now it's sort of you kind of have you're forced to have a, a presence and, and and a profile. That's very true. And that, you know, very true. Yeah, that you might not necessarily like you're saying about burial. You know, he's not that sort of artist. He's not just because you make music doesn't mean that you know how to push yourself or see mm. something. A lot of a lot of producers I know, they're not successful because they. They don't want to play the marketing thing. They don't want to have to put themselves out there. They're like shy, introvert people who yeah. want to just be in the studio, and make good music, and and hope that it gets out there. But they don't necessarily want to build followers and build a page and all of that, you know. And that's something that's changed drastically. Yeah. It was never so important before to what your actual image was like. And sometimes yeah. that that image can take over. Your skill, yeah, it can grow faster than your the actual skill of the person. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one, especially I think with women that can definitely be the case and stuff. My partner wore a mask for a yeah. considerable amount of their career. No one oh, really, really knew who they were, and then they so took, was they that took, yeah, like took an off anonymous to, for, yeah, to be anonymous, absolutely, so they can listen to the music. Mm. It's straight, pretty straight, straight up and straightforward. That you know, sick and tired of potentially any sort of comments that could be coming in about their appearance and stuff like that and whatever. And I think you shouldn't have to do all these things because I guess it's more... Well, realistically, all of us are here very much for the music. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. much the yeah. the main component. Do you know what I mean? It's that rather than having to market yourself and all this kind of stuff, the, the main component should be the music. Skepta tried a really interesting thing, actually, a couple of years ago at Manchester International Festival. And he did a show where he... Um, stipulated that you could not bring a phone. Mm. So either you left your phone at home or you checked your phone in at the door and you didn't get it until after the show. And it was it was wild, actually. I realised that I hadn't been out, I don't know, maybe for a decade or longer without a phone. And I, just, I, I elected to just yeah. leave it at home. But he really changed the dynamic in the room that night and it took me back to those early to those days. those early days, yeah. Yeah, and... I thought, wow, this feels absolutely wild because everybody is laser focused on Skepta's performance and they're not thinking about something that they need to capture for Instagram. Exactly. That's um, kind of what we've done the policy at Fabric. We just yeah. Yes, of course. It, the thing is, it's like there always was a no no photos rule at Fabric, like always from from day one. And you know, if you came in with a camera, it would get put into the cloakroom or put away in security. I mean, it would only be authorized photographers that would take you know take photos but just obviously in the last i don't know maybe decade 
maybe less, it just got hard to police. We yeah. just couldn't police it anymore. It'd be like, literally, I would get abused. I would go onto the dance floor and complain to people if they were sort of like standing around the DJ and it just like would be a, sometimes a big DJ, but it'd just be like a flash of light <laughs> yeah. constantly yeah. while they're trying to play. And it's like, I'd go around and I'd go, look, guys, it's fine you get one photo, but seriously, the whole people standing there with like iPads, <laughs> like literally like that all night long. You're like, are you for real? It's like, seriously. Mm. And you'd go around there and complain and they would scream, shout at you. They'd be like, just could not understand what you were talking about. It's like, how would you like it if you were sat at your desk and someone just shone a light in your face the whole time you were working? You know, you wouldn't like that. So why should you expect the DJ to do that while they're working? It is insane it's as just well. just too intrusive. And yeah. So, I mean, it's not that we don't want anyone to have a phone. I mean, it's going to be hard. It is going to be still yeah. hard to police it. But I don't mind if you're going to take a photo at the bar or or of some or or, or in one of the, one of the rooms. Like, but on the dance floor, no. Leave it. I, I just yeah. just just leave it. I want people to just stay in the moment and enjoy it. And and also, I think like by doing it. One of the things about sort of in the early days of, of, of there not being that option to take photos and stuff, you never even thought about it when you're on the dance floor. Even if I used to take my camera out on a very rare occasion, I would take my, it would stay in my bag all night because I could <laughs> never remember to bother to get it out, you know. And so I and I think that kind of gave you a little bit more sort of a safety element as well. You know, you you knew that you were going out and you were going to escape. There's mm. no one you aren't going to see some picture of you completely wasted like online the next morning. You know, you're going to see in some uncompromising position or something. You know, you didn't have to take that risk, and and that's what I think is is sort of we need to bring back. You know, people need to be able to express themselves on the dance floor and not know that someone's going to take a picture of them and, and mm. it's going to end up somewhere. You need to have more control of your sort of space. Mm. And that's kind of like the reasoning sort of behind reiterating it now after lockdown. We're like, you know what? Let's just, yeah, let's reclaim our, our space, basically. Yeah. You'll notice more people... Um nursing their friends back to health in the <laughs> not leaving them yeah exactly yeah, exactly. well yeah because they've got their, they just assume that they can contact them on the phone yeah so it's like that that moment aspect of must catch the moment it's like how many different slides on an instagram story of videos that you're never going to watch and probably have well, to that's delete it. it's like half the time you're not going to watch yeah. it again yeah. it's like some grainy video of like it's yeah. really dark it. it's like hardly anyone there and then you get end up with all these these uh, videos online videos, yeah. they're really crap that's how i feel about um fireworks like i never film fireworks because it's like <laughs> no but if you know it's like a really beautiful firework display i don't know i love fireworks yeah, yeah. and it's like why would you but people do like you're they with do, them they yeah get their phones like they will they'll last like five minutes that's and the worst thing i think they're the most beautiful thing yeah, in the yeah, world yeah. i never just, film they're about that moment and that point? time who cares yeah. if i'm watching fireworks like do you yeah. care if you saw that on my story no like it's pointless no. I think as well, I don't know, it is a spiritual place, isn't it, the dance floor, really? Mm. It used to be in our generation. And it was a place that you could escape from the chaos of the world and you could find a kind of, I don't know, a cerebral sense of peace in in spite of the fact that you were surrounded by music and bodies and chaos. There, There was a sense of peace that you could arrive at within yourself um, in the middle of a dance floor. And that sense of escapism, I think, is incredibly important. It certainly was in my life. Mm. And it, it did used to feel like, in a way, it was like going to church, going to DMZ. It really was, yeah. Um, and I remember before I ever really knew anybody there at all. It's funny, actually, the story. Um, 
it was a, an artist, a Bristol artist called Pinch. I found his very first 12-inch and I thought, oh my gosh, what is this sound? I can hear the component parts, but this is a new interpretation. And I remember it was pouring with rain and I was on the top of a double-decker bus in King's Cross and I rang up Pinch and I said to him, what is this music that you're making on my Nokia phone? And, and he said, well, it's, it's called dubstep. And if you really want to figure out anything more about this, you know, you need to go to a club called DMZ and you need to find a guy called Mala, which is exactly what I did. But I used to go in the early days. I didn't know anybody at all, actually, nobody. But I used to feel this incredible sense of peace in the middle yeah. of that space, just on my own, you know, with the music and all my troubles, which were many actually at that point, just dispersing in that moment. Completely. But I feel if if at that point, you know, I'd have had a fabulous Apple phone in my hand, the experience would have been entirely mm. different, mm -hmm. I think, probably. So, yeah. Maybe put the phone down for a bit and see how you get on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's been really yeah. well received, us sort of reiterating it to people. It's been way more well received than we thought. I mean, of course, there's some people going, why are you doing that? Why can't we have a phone? But it's just like, we get, we're like, it's been really well received, but let's see what the reality is it when goes, it actually yeah. opens. But, you know, I think people may well respect it now. I think Especially that after being locked ready up for, that for with so it. long. We, you know, yeah. people are going to be really, I hope, really want to get back into the rave Absolutely. and just make the most of it yeah you would think you witnessed a lot of horror i mean for me anyway i witnessed a lot of horrors via my phone recently obviously with if you go back to like blm yeah and stuff yeah, like just, via your phone it's just, it's just there you can be scrolling just, and then no so i'm i'm more you know yeah. more than happy anyway to not have it because I, I think it just can bring a whole lot of anxieties you've got emails on there you've got messages mm. you've got whatsapp and you've got all the various different social medias I feel like possibly also all of us have been in a situation where we have been on the receiving end of a lot of abuse on social media. And do you know what? I wanted to share this today if there was an opportunity to do it because I thought it was really useful. I have a friend in America who's very famous and he was getting absolutely torn to shreds on social media. And I, I had a conversation with him about what was happening and he used this brilliant expression he used the expression internet turbulence mm. and I, I went away and thought about it and I thought essentially what he's trying to communicate to me is the fact that if you decide to get on a plane once that vehicle is up in the air it's subjected to all kinds of forces that are way beyond anybody else's control weather systems whatever it may be but obviously you've decided that you want to make the journey. You're getting on that plane. You want to go to New York or Barcelona, wherever you're going to go. So you have engaged with it. And I thought, I tried ever since that conversation to think about social media in that context, thinking, okay, if I choose to engage with this, I know that there's a lot of really hostile, aggressive, racist, sexist, misogynistic, bigoted forces on the internet. That's just the nature of the space. So in a way, it helps me to kind of detach my emotion from it because I just think you're, what you're dealing with is a space that is is already conceived of in this way and is, is very, very difficult to marshal. So mm. it helped me to just look at social media 
like a tool. So I just use it when I want to platform something that I think is important, that mm-hmm. I think is wonderful. Like yesterday, I posted about the fact that we, mm. we got your single on the playlist, mm. which I was so pleased about. But beyond that, it's it's really helped me to sort of separate out my emotional connection with social media. And it just, mm. I don't know, I just thought it's such a simple phrase, internet turbulence. But I thought, yeah, I like that. It works yeah. for me, you know. Like you've that. only got one though you've only got, you only got Twitter yeah I can't cope with the rest Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I it. I, well I've got Insta I've got Instagram the kids at Fabric made me an Insta page about three, or four, <laughs> about three or four years ago and um and I've probably made about five posts in that whole time. <laughs> I'm like a sort of annual post um you know if I really 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 want to say something then like I'll put it on there, but it's mainly sort of, it's, it's kind of turned into a little bit of a, my friend passed away a few years back and it sort of turned into a little bit of a tribute for him because like every year I post something about him. And then, then there's maybe a few things like the, the Black Lives Matter mm. sort of comment when I was so horrified. So I thought I've got to get some of this out, you know, and I did actually after last year, I did sort of think, you know what, maybe you should use your platform more. Maybe you should, like, you know, after me, me venting the way I felt after the George Floyd thing, I thought, you know, maybe I, I need to sort of do this more and people need, you know, hear what I say and just get it off my chest. But yeah, I I haven't got Facebook. I've never had that You've before. You've probably got the right idea to be honest, Judy. Like, mm. it's, it's, you could literally, like this morning, I was going to have like a really productive morning and then I just spent, went on my phone, annoyingly, like when, when I was in bed and then I was just on, I was literally just on my phone. You're on all, it, All yeah. morning, wasted the whole morning. I'm nothing. an Insta voyeur. I'm a voyeur. Sorry. I'm that person that just sort of like looks at other people's pages <laughs> and see, see what everyone's yeah. writing and do what everyone's up to. But I don't actually personally post myself very often. I might do it a little bit more. I think people should just sort of use their platforms to sort of educate or elevate. Yeah. If you're not doing one of those two things, then oh my God, yeah, get what's the point? <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? Um, I feel like we're coming to a close. I think I'll just ask our like our final question, which I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and that is, what is your utopia, and how are we going to get there? What does it look like? I guess my utopia is where sort of things like inclusion and diversity and equality are just normalised, you know, and that we kind of like people start ripping up the rule book, changing the narrative, and. Uh, yeah, get on with doing things in a much more sustainable way. Like, that's what I would like to see, not just in Clubland, but just in the world in, in itself. Mm. Like, those kind of values, like, coming to the fore and people, like, really doing the work because there is a lot of work to do from people. And, and I think a lot, I think one of the things about sort of striving for for equality and all those things, it, like, 100%, is that people are not prepared to do the work and there is a lot to do. We have a lot to dismantle. There's so many systems from like the penal system to the NHS and hospital systems. We love you, NHS. But you still have a system that needs dismantling the courts, all of these things. Sort of, We need to change the way that we, we think about stuff. Yeah. And nice. so that kind of a world is my utopia, I think, is like, you know, where I don't have to sort of make excuses for sort of who I am. And, and you know, I, I can, that everybody can just be, everyone can just exist. Yeah. I think that's my utopia, really. Sounds great. Great place. Somewhere where love wins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marianne, what's your utopia? I think it is all about sharing the love if you want to atomise it, isn't it? And conversations like this are really, really important. Bringing women together like this to talk about their stories mm. is so important. And then, I don't know, it's 
doing what all four of us, I think, have, have done all our lives, isn't it? We see a chink of light and we see something that looks great and we see people that we can help and we see a positive direction that we want to move in, which does move us towards more equality and sustainability. And we imagine the kind of future that we want to build and then we go out proactively and make that happen every day. And there are a lot of things that need to change. And I, but I believe that things change incrementally and it's, it's wonderful to have utopian dreams and I think we should all aim really high, but every single step along the way, along that pathway is an important one. Mm. So thank you for bringing us together today. Oh my God, thank you. Yeah, it's, been, it's been great. It's been gorgeous. And Sherelle, we'll, we'll end with you then, your utopia. I wish that Mary ended actually because <laughs> I, I realised that I don't, yeah. Ending in in such a nice, beautiful, poetic way is not necessarily my <laughs> Go on. strong point. Um, I think if I had a utopia, it would be basically taking, obviously, what both parties have said. I would obviously love to see a bit more intersectionality of things. I think that's so desperately needed anyway in this, in the world that we live in at the moment anyway. So in my utopia, there would be aspects of that. I would desperately want it to be some form of like, I, I guess, like safe haven. I'd mm. want people to be able to express themselves freely. I'd want to get rid of obviously binaries because I think that those are the kind of things that they don't sometimes allow for progress in the mm-hmm. sense of things. I'm not talking about, you know, is it yes or is, is, is it no? It's, it's more to do with just, in, you know, general, general being and how like sometimes having binaries actually is like, this is evil and this is, this is good. I'd want to kind of get rid of, of that. And I would want to obviously my place to be a good place, mm-hmm. just to stress. But I also wouldn't want someone to, to sit there and be like, well, I am this person and I do this and this and this. I think obviously we live in a lot of like different binaries as, as people anyway. And I'd want someone to really express themselves for who they are, which obviously you, you do see within the trans community and the non-binary community mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I would obviously just, yeah, expressing yourself. Yeah, like just having some actual love there yeah. and actually just having the, the freedom to kind of do what you want without having to think too deeply maybe about what the job or what, something does in order for you to gain or anything like that um mm-hmm. don't know yeah i just just like it to be happy and no police <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know i i would trust in the fact that people obviously would be nice enough to mm. people i don't want people getting in their heads already trying to categorize themselves as better yeah. than because we we realistically should just all be on the same level the, the same the same level and then also appreciate and listen and respect each other so yeah, yeah. no police and all of the above <laughs> <laughs> amazing thank you guys so much um i feel like for me like this is my utopia i, I live for these conversations and it's a real honor to have the three of you and the four of us in this room um so yeah thank you so much for coming on thank you oh, oh thank you thanks thank for having you. us Sharing a room with Judy, Sherelle and Marianne and having the space to discuss these topics was incredible. I'm feeling so inspired after hearing their stories and I'm really excited to see their careers continue to reach crazy heights. Big thank you to Katie Baxter for producing this episode and once again, let me know what you thought. I'm at Jaguar Worldwide. Tag me, let me know. I'd love to hear from you and we will see you in the next episode. Utopia Talks is a stack production.
and part of the Acast Creator Network.